Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In each of our podcasts in this series, we're going to be chowing down on the grisly feast that is UK trade policy. Britain has now left the EU and its future course in Europe and in the world is to a large extent in its own hands. But where is post-Brexit Britain heading? Do we even know what sort of a country we want to be once the divorce from the EU has become decree absolute? Today we'll be looking at that Brexit process in forensic detail. The title of today's podcast is Have We Got Brexit Done Yet? And if not, what's left to do? Now clearly we are riffing here on Boris Johnson's famous pre-election slogan, Get Brexit Done. And obviously at one level that objective was achieved on the 31st of January. But we know that there is still a lot left on the agenda. And in particular, in terms of the future trade relationship between the UK and the EU. So what still lies ahead for the UK and for the EU as this process evolves? To unveil some of these mysteries, we are joined once again by a stellar cast of experts in the field. I'm joined here in Brighton by Dr Peter Holmes, reader in economics here at the University of Sussex and a fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. Joining us on the line is Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London and Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. He was also recently described by Le Monde newspaper as Le Sphinx du Brexit. And we're also joined from Brussels by Fabian Zuleg, who is Chief Executive of the European Policy Centre. Welcome, everybody. Hi. Hi. Hello. So, Peter, let's start with uh, with you, if I may. So, getting Brexit done, technically speaking, what are the steps to completing this process of disengagement from the EU? And, and as of February 2020, where have we got to so far? Well, the only thing you can say with certainty is that we haven't actually got Brexit done. We've got the withdrawal agreement, uh, and that's been passed and has come into effect. That covers certain aspects of our relationship. I think I'm right in saying that uh, it covers the states of Northern Ireland. It covers some aspects of citizens' and rights. It actually establishes a dispute settlement agreement for what happens when a fuller agreement has been signed, and it covers the existence of geographical indicators, which the UK must agree to respect indefinitely. But almost everything else about our relationship with the EU is completely up in the air. What is also open is exactly what happens in a year's time. If the so-called transition period isn't extended, do we have to have agreed everything by then? Or can we go into an implementation period with more time for things to settle down and indeed things that can't be agreed this year to be negotiated? I just don't know the answer to that one. It's already sounding complex, isn't it? So, um, Anand, Peter mentioned about the, uh, the transition period. So, from February onwards, what has changed in terms of Britain's relationship with the EU and what still remains unchanged for the moment? Well, 
that's quite a fundamental change, which is why, from a narrow legal point of view, Brexit is done, which is we're not a member state of the European Union anymore. And that matters because that is not reversible in the way it was prior to the expiry of the Article 50 period. So I think you shouldn't underestimate the significance of that. And what that means is while trade with the European Union continues as it did when we were a member state, we're no longer represented on EU bodies, we no longer have a vote, we no longer have a judge. So the situation is very different. And the one obvious similarity with what went before is we've started the clock ticking towards another Brexit deadline, which is to say either the end of June if the government decides to extend transition or the end of the year if it doesn't. Fabian, if I can come to you, from the EU's point of view, so Britain, as, as we've heard, is now legally, officially a third country. So that means that the way that uh, Brussels interacts with the UK has to change quite fundamentally. What changes have we seen so far in, in that respect? I think from uh, an EU perspective, clearly the relationship the EU has is very different between a third country uh, and a member state. And we have already seen some of those changes uh, starting to come through. Now they are officially out. Uh, of course, they are no longer seated around the table. So in many ways, uh, the UK will have to find a different way of working in Brussels. Um, but for Brussels itself, not so much changes. Um, we've had some changes in the composition of the European Parliament, uh, reflecting that the British MEPs have left. We have to be um, more vigilant about who gets the papers. Uh, the UK had to be cut out of every male uh, distributor uh, within the, the institutions. But in essence, the way the EU functions uh, continues as before, just with the absence of the UK. So the big question really from the UK's point of view at the moment is, is what does Britain actually want from, from Brexit? And I, I wonder to what extent has it, has it clarified its trade policy objectives? Peter, do you, what's, what's your view on that? I think that it remains to be seen exactly what the UK objectives are. What's clear is that the present British government, uh, much more so than Theresa May's government, wants to have the right to diverge whenever it wants on third country trade policy and on domestic regulations that affect trade. It's still a little bit unclear to me how far um, what it wants to do is to have the right to do these things or to actually substantially change its regulatory regime. Clearly, uh, it wants to start negotiating free trade agreements with third countries. But of course, that is to a large measure really replacing the ones which we've had at the moment. So I think that we're waiting to see exactly how they are planning to use the newfound autonomy. What Boris Johnson has made very clear is that he wants Britain to be in a free trade agreement with the EU rather than any kind of EEA-style formal link with the EU single market. Anand, what do you think motivated that, that choice? And, and, and what does it say about perhaps the way uh, the, way the government is, is, is pursuing policy at the moment? Well, I think the government is motivated by what it sees as honouring the purpose of Brexit. Uh, there seems to be an insistence in number 10, certainly, on the fact that actually abiding by EU rules, being in a customs union, would be a betrayal of what Brexit was meant to be. I mean, it speaks to a broader issue for me, which is the utter primacy of politics in this debate. You know, observers look at this and say, 
well, they can't be serious because that's going to be very economically damaging. And I think the danger is that we've missed the point that this is such an exceedingly political government that the details of economic impact is not something that they're spending a lot of time worrying about. I mean, there's no doubt that the Prime Minister knows what the economic impacts of what he's proposing are because the government has the best forecasts about this. But they're focusing on something else and they're making an explicitly political gamble that simply by delivering Brexit and by delivering it in as they see it's a clean way, that will appeal to the kinds of leave voters that gave Boris Johnson his majority back in December. Fabian, do you think the European Commission and the the EU member states are are clear-headed about what they're dealing with in terms of this uh, explicitly political approach that the Johnson government is taking? I think uh, they have had a lot of experience over the last three and a half years uh, about the political nature of this. But also, um, from an EU perspective, in many ways, the second phase of negotiation is much more business than usual. Uh, Yes, the UK is a very different partner. It is a much closer uh, partner in many ways. But in essence, uh, the EU is now negotiating with a third country. It has the levers um, to implement what uh, it wants to get out of these negotiations. And in essence, it will be a question of whether the UK falls in line with that or risks uh, having no uh, deal at the end of the year at all. So which brings us to the question of what can actually be achieved between now and the 31st of December. So I'll, I'll just throw this open to, 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 to all of you gentlemen. What, what do you think, well, is it possible that despite all of the protestations, Boris Johnson will have to ask for an extension to the negotiating period when, when June the 30th comes along? I I can start with um, saying from my perspective, uh, if we don't have an extension, there are only three outcomes, uh, bad, worse, or terrible. Uh, <laughs> the bad outcome is we agree a deal, but that deal would have to be very minimal. The worst outcome is that we don't get a deal, that we get to the end of the year um, and uh, we find that we cannot agree. But there's also the terrible outcome, which is uh, that we might actually get into much more direct conflict with each other. For example, around the fisheries question, people should remember things like the Cod Wars. This has a lot of potential also for, for conflict. So what we cannot get by the end of the year is the deep comprehensive relationship, which some people have talked about as the objective here. For that, we simply haven't got enough time. Would anyone like to shed a a ray of optimism into this gloomy scenario? I'd like to ask a question of of the others, really, because um, we we heard last week that Monsieur Barnier wants to propose uh, an association agreement, and it just leaves me wondering whether it's possible to sign an association agreement which leaves lots of things to be filled in during what could be called an implementation period, which is actually de facto an extension of the um, transition period and would it be acceptable to either side to have effectively an extension of the transition period in which those things that haven't been agreed uh, would effectively still be in understand still? I think, I mean, ultimately the only way to extend transition is to extend transition and you do that. I think we forget sometimes that Article 50 is 
provided a fairly benign context for these negotiations compared to the context in which the EU usually negotiates with third parties. And the withdrawal agreement continues that by giving us this opportunity to extend in a very, very painless way. I think once we've hit the end of June deadline, whilst it might be possible for creative lawyers to find a way of maintaining the status quo in the absence of an agreement, in the first place, that will in itself be an agreement and require all the ratificatory steps of an agreement on the EU side. So it'll be complicated, it'll be political, it'll be time-consuming, and it won't necessarily be that easy. So, yes, I could imagine that you know, the British government, as we get towards September, October, says to the European Union, look, we're not going to be done. Is there a way of keeping things going? I'm not convinced the answer will be yes, and I'm not convinced it, the... Any, anything that is put into place to replace transition will be as neat, as smooth and as comprehensive as transition is. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think there's also um, a misunderstanding of what will actually happen in January next year if we don't have that extension to transition. Yes, of course, if we have a very basic deal, there will be many things in there which will be kept open. And there is nothing to stop the EU and the UK to sit down beyond December uh, and to negotiate these things. But the default will be that the relationship in those areas which are not covered by the deal would be back to the relationship the EU has with any third country. There is no easy replacement for having the transition followed by a deal. Uh, and I think on top of that, the, the big difficulty is that it is by far not clear whether anything is possible unless the UK government actually asks for the, the extension to transition before June. Um, because once we get into the autumn, once we get towards the exit from the transition date, it legally becomes almost impossible to continue that status. And if there is no deal by the 31st of December, I'm wondering what that cliff edge, which business is so worried about, what it will actually look like. Gentlemen, what's your, what, are, what are your views on that? Can I just say, I think there are two questions here. One is, what happens if there's no trade deal at all? And uh, what happens in the situation which uh, Fabian was talking about, in which we have a very basic trade deal and the other things aren't addressed the message I got in Brussels when I was last there last week was that the Commission is is looking towards proposing that, with respect to divergence and the um, level playing field, that they won't actually take action immediately, but will be you know as long as our standards don't, uh, our regulations and enforcement of them isn't changing. I got the impression that they would actually not immediately take action against uh, British goods, but that they would have very close monitoring so that um, we would uh, go to a situation in which we didn't pay tariffs and nothing else kicked in, but then it could at very short notice. Now, I don't know if that's actually likely, but that, that was the, the, the impression I got. Whereas if there's no deal at all, then clearly the... Uh, the tariffs kick in immediately and something perhaps slightly more draconian than the uh, uh, the wait-and-see attitude comes in. I don't know if that is actually very realistic. I think if, if we have no deal at all, then uh, it will go very basic um, because there are also international obligations uh, the European Union has 
We cannot allow a third country uh, with uh, which we don't have a deal to have preferential market actors. If there is a deal, uh, there is a justification. But I would be very careful about how much certainty that creates, even when uh, the Commission says they might not enforce certain provisions at that point. Uh, the difficulty is that this is not necessarily up to the Commission. Um, we have a community of law, and within that community of law, we also have individual rights and we have company rights. So a company which might feel that whatever arrangement we have with the European Union breaches the provisions of the single market, or an individual uh, which might feel that their individual rights are being infringed by any arrangement we have, for example, if data is being transferred uh, across the channel, might well take this to court. And if that is the case, the European Court of Justice overrules anything else. One thing which, which I'm struck by is that the UK government has has talked a lot about wanting to do a, a deal on reducing or not reintroducing tariffs on goods. But both sides really seem to be soft-pedalling quite a lot on, on the question of, of services and, and, and freedom of, uh, of establishment of businesses and, and, and so on. So why do you think that the services question is, is on the back burner? Is it simply because it's too complicated to do a deal in the compressed time frame available? Well, I think it is partly that. It is more to do with the fact that the British government has decided to prioritise ending free movement and not having any European Court of Justice jurisdiction, if at all possible. And I think those two things make it very hard to see what, if anything, can really be done in the area of services. I mean, on the one hand, there is a, there is a degree of honesty about this approach that was absent under Theresa May in the sense that the government accepts the fact that there are trade-offs, that if you are doing certain things, then certain things become impossible in the talks with the European Union. But I think, it's again, it's, it's the politics around free movement and the court that are driving this rather than any consideration of the economics of the services sector. One thing which the UK is going to have to do in the meantime is sort out its trade relationships with other countries, third countries, to use the EU jargon. And Britain, since, well, for the past 12 months or so, the UK has been attempting to roll over the uh, EU's free trade agreements with other countries to apply to itself once um, it's outside of the EU customs union, as will be the case from the start of 2021 onwards, if uh, all goes according to, uh, to schedule. So how much progress has Britain made in, in rolling over these other FTAs, free trade agreements? Well, I think first, uh, I, I would say it's quite ironic that uh, freedom from the EU in this case means actually just copying the deals which the EU has negotiated. Um, but the UK has made some progress on this. But uh, I think this is um, also an area where we will need to see when it comes to real negotiations, when it comes to the big trading partners. I mean, first and foremost, of course, when the UK uh, negotiates with the EU, but then uh, also in negotiations with other major powers. One of the things uh, which continues to be asked all around the world is what relationship is the UK going to have with the EU? And before that is not settled, it looks very, very unlikely that there will be any significant deals apart from these kind of standstill deals uh, to rule over what is already there. 
Can I just throw in that, uh, of course, we've had uh, a couple of countries saying that uh, whereas they're prepared to continue applying the existing EU deals during the transition period, they won't necessarily sign an agreement afterwards, uh, in particular Canada and Japan. And South Korea may insist on changes. And, of course, Turkey can't sign an agreement with us because it's in it's got its own customs union with the EU uh, until it knows what free trade agreement the UK has with the EU and then it has to replicate it. And I, I would just add one other thing which uh, we've been um, thinking about here at Sussex, which is that it is impossible for the UK bilaterally to replicate the relationship it's had in the past uh, with its other partners because at the moment... The uh, UK can, for example, export cars to Japan or South Korea using parts and components made in, um, in the rest of the EU. These count as if they're British. Unless the third country agrees to, to acknowledge, uh, to, to recognise EU parts and components as the equivalent of British, we won't have, uh, we'd have problems satisfying the rules of origin in these third country agreements. And much more significantly, from a, a much harder to deal with, is the fact that if the um, EU wishes to continue selling its cars into Japan, take advantage of its ongoing free trade agreement, it won't be able to count British parts and components, British engines or anything else, that go into German cars that go to Japan as EU content unless it signs an agreement to modify its relations with the uh, the third countries, which they're a bit unlikely to do. So uh, it's, it's very difficult to um, uh, actually get the market access that we've got already. Yes, and um, it's striking that there wasn't anything about rules of origin on, written on the side of a bus in the uh, run-up to, uh, uh, to the referendum, and there's probably a, a good reason for that. But of course, one question which most ordinary non-trade wonk people uh, will be concerned about, about Brexit, is the question of what happens when I, when I go on holiday. What do we know so far about how those arrangements are shaping up? I mean, I think the first point uh, to make is that um, apart from those things which are now regulated by the withdrawal agreement, uh, we really don't know what the future regime is going to be. We've heard certain expressions on both sides about what they might want to do, what they might desire to have. Um, but that all depends also on the outcome of the negotiations. Um, if we get into a situation of very strong disputes where, where uh, both sides are locking into something, then I wouldn't even exclude that we might end up in a situation where people will require visas or where people will be limited in where they go. On top of that, I think one of the big questions um, is uh, how we are going to deal with people who might intend to move across for work, either uh, permanently or temporarily. Um, if you have people entering the UK, for example, on a tourist visa, but then stay on and work uh, without permission to work, uh, what happens with uh, company visits? Um, how do we deal with the provision of services, which is linked to people moving, um, but again, a lot of this also depends on what kind of deal we have. 
Yes, and of course Brexit isn't just about trade. There are, are, are strategic questions about um, our cooperation with our European partners on things like security issues. How will Britain's place in the world be affected by the changes which Brexit is going to bring? I mean, again, that's something we don't know the answer to yet. Uh, we've had this phrase, global Britain, knocking around for a few years. Uh, what we don't know as yet is what it means. I mean, we, you know, what we've seen very clearly over the course of the last uh, year, for instance, is the fact that Boris Johnson has actually aligned himself quite closely with EU positions on things like the Paris Climate Accord on Iran. Uh, and there's no real sign that we're going to use Brexit as a way of diverging from Europeans on core strategic interests. But I suppose the real danger for foreign and security policy for where I am is that they simply don't get the attention they deserve because everyone is so wrapped up talking about trade. And it has been quite appalling to see how little thought to date has gone into the broader foreign and security policy aspects of Brexit. I would agree to that. I think um, maybe to add is, I think we also are in a situation where globally um, there is a lot of instability, uh, there are a lot of pressures. And one of the big unknowns is how the UK is going to react to those pressures uh, after Brexit. Um, in some way, being within the European Union gives you a bit of cover. Um, you can always hide behind Brussels on some issues. But if you're alone, how do you deal with the competition between China and the US? Uh, where do you stand on issues uh, like the Iran deal, on Russian sanctions, on a number of other foreign policy issues? We have seen for over the last few months a lot of talk in the UK about a trade deal uh, with the United States. Uh, my contention would be if you want a trade deal with the United States under Donald Trump, uh, you will have to toe the line. Um, and that would put the UK into conflict with many European positions. Uh, one of the things I picked up in Washington recently was that uh, the US has uh, the idea of using, uh, to the extent the WTO still exists, cases brought that it can bring against the UK as a way of getting at the EU, whereas it can't uh, uh, clearly undermine the whole um, EU regulatory regime internally, it can actually bring cases against the UK uh, in areas where um, it doesn't like uh, what the, 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 doesn't like the EU approach, which the UK is currently adopting. So, I suspect we'll be in a much weaker position. How the Chinese will view us is another matter. They used to see us as a useful bridgehead into Europe quite what we have to offer China today is, is less clear. I want to just ask everybody, as, as we move towards the end of our podcast, one question. As always, it's probably an unfair question, but um, I'm going to ask, ask you each this question anyway. At what point do you think the UK's trade relationships with the EU and the rest of the world will be finally settled post-Brexit? Or do you think a, a settled trade status for the UK is, is just an illusion, really? Um, what do you think, Fabian? Um, I think that is an impossible question. Um, I think it very much also depends on the aspiration. Um, what we have heard from uh, the UK government, at least uh, over the last few months, uh, is actually very low on aspiration. So, yes, you can reach a very low point in that relationship within a reasonable time, 
but I'm not sure that is really what is best for the UK economy uh, or even the UK politics. Um, so I think the relationship between the UK and the rest of the European Union is going to be in flux for quite a number of years. Um, it might even become um, more difficult in many areas. Um, so um, I wouldn't expect this to settle down anytime soon. And do you see Brexit as being a, a verb rather than a noun? Uh, I think it already is. But I mean, what I would say is, you know, if you look at the example of, say, Switzerland, if you're a neighbour of the European Union, but not an aspirant member of the European Union, then basically you're in a permanent state of negotiation with it. Simply because rules on both sides change, you want to update the nature of that relationship at certain points. Uh, I can see, you know, a permanent state of negotiation between the UK and the and the European Union from now on in. I mean, it won't it won't be on the front page of all our newspapers. We might, you know, ordinary people might be blissfully unaware of it, but this never gets done finally because there will be adjustments being made all the time. Peter, plenty of work for UK TPO by the uh, same. Yes, yes. I, I just add that it, it partly depends on what the objectives of the British government really are, because one interpretation of uh, recent government announcements is that they really want to turn the UK into a version of the southern United States with high-tech foreign investment, uh, low unionisation, welfare being cut back. And if that is the agenda, it could take quite a long time to, to get there. Um, it, if, are we prepared to just settle back to this sort of uh, situation where we're, uh, uh, like Switzerland, in, in constant negotiations? Or are we really drifting across the Atlantic? It could take us quite a long time to, to sail that way. Indeed. And there we must leave it. That wraps up our podcast for today. It's been a fascinating discussion of, of the issues. I'd like to say a big thank you to our guests today, to Peter Holmes, to Anand Menon, and to Fabian Zuleg. And most of all, thank you very much to all of you for, for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time on Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series, brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.